Welcome to EduBlether, a podcast discussing the hot issues in Scottish education. In this episode, we have a wonderful conversation with David Cameron, the real David Cameron, who is an educational consultant, a researcher, a wonderful speaker and an all-round great guy. And the conversation is wonderful. I hope you'll enjoy it. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or Pinterest. And you can also read our blog at edublether.wordpress.com. And also every Tuesday we host an Edublether live chat, which you can take part in leading the conversation around Scottish education. So what's new with you, Jace? Anything new since the last time we spoke? Um, not really. Just, I guess, to comment on, we've had a few Edublether live sessions um, in the last wee while, um, which... Have gone really well, really quite interesting. We've had two people hosting um, Edge of Other Lives. So we had Early Years Ideas on Play, mm-hmm. and we also had Susie Dick hosting on Rural Education. So it's quite interesting to see how other people um, come up with questions and lead that. Um, and we've got a couple more in the pipeline coming up. Um, I guess since the last time we had our Selmas special, didn't we? Selmas was great. I it was that. really, really good. And we hope you enjoyed the last episode, the bonus episode, uh, where you could listen to the keynote speakers, because uh, we loved that evening. Yeah. We've also, um, just to trail a wee opportunity, we've got, um, a, I was going to say a street mate, but that's not the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> What's street it called? Wise? Is it Streetwise, street yeah. Streetmate is Davina McCall, 1990s, <laughs> isn't it? No, we've got a Streetwise hosted <coughs> by Joyce Matthews. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, in June, uh, on the 1st of June, called An Edge Leather Teacher's Field Trip. Um, so if you're interested, then sign up on Twitter. So that's what's been happening with me. Yeah. I, I wanted to have a wee chat about a, a great creative conversation that I went to, which the creative conversations are, um, a, again, a kind of collection of keynote speakers that come together. I think they happen maybe once a term okay. within Edinburgh Council, and it's sort of partnership Edinburgh Council and Edinburgh Council's creative team and Education Scotland, and it's usually just wonderful guest speakers that come. Sounds um, good. This, the, the, the one that I went to most recently was um, with Howell Roberts and Jeanette Basin-Wood, and it was called A Happiness Injection. And it was... Good I title. Could tell, I could tell when I went in that it was going to be a different CBD yeah, yeah. experience. So Friday afternoon, I was a bit tired, I was a bit um, lethargic and jaded after the week and I kind of went in and um, immediately I was handed a song sheet and there was a, there was a piano being set up at, wow. the, at the front of the room. Um, so you were and, in a choir? <laughs> well, yeah, essentially. There was Hokey Cokey action <laughs> that took place. There was a dance-off at some point in the middle of this CPD session. It, it was it was brilliant and I, I suppose to kind of summarise it and the, the themes behind it, it was about actually in teaching there's so much to be happy about Mm -hmm. and there was just some 
wonderful stories that they would share with us about their experience in teaching and it was it was just basically it was a storytelling session but I left feeling oh I w- it was poorless like my cheeks were so sore from smiling <laughs> so much and laughing so much um, and we ended up getting in a taxi with them and taking them to the train station and have a chat they were just the two of the nicest people uh, so Hill Roberts and Jeanette Mason would I would um I would I'd say thank you so much for that happiness injection. It served its purpose a lot. It was great. Sounds like it had a very positive impact on you. Yeah, it was wonderful. Sounds great. Okay. Um now on to in the news, what's been happening? Um and we know how everyone relies on <laughs> Edgy Blether for their Scottish education news. So what is hot in the news at what the moment, is Jude? It's the the teachers thing. <laughs> Just for a change. <laughs> I think this, we talked about this in episode fourteen, didn't we? Yeah. So what is new then? What is new? Well, well, this this is when the the pay has has been awarded, or okay. or councils, some councils oh. have been awarded their backdated their kind of payment in arrears and and their new pay award. Not all authorities have been, but of course, in a, something this size, there's always going to be complications. Yeah, yeah. you'll get it out, I'm sure. We'll get it out. But I suppose the fact that teachers are, are getting the benefit of that yeah. now. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's, it's been a very long and drawn out process, been able to it get has. to this point. Uh, but I think it'll be a nice, nice timing of things to be able to come right in time for the summer holidays and, and everyone will be able to enjoy. Definitely. Okay, it's now time for our main feature where we have an edgy blether with David Cameron, the real David Cameron. And I think, Jude, I'm sure you'll agree, this was a superb interview. I really enjoyed listening to David. I could listen to him for hours and hours. I could have a conversation with him about so many things that he's been involved in over the years in education, particularly within Scotland but he also talks about some lessons learned from other parts of the UK and beyond. Um, just a really insightful person, someone who's really um, steeped in education in, um, and has been a real key feature for a number of decades, I would say, uh, and continues to be a feature mm. of Scottish education. And we talk about a wide range of topics with David, of which he is such a credible source of information on all of these areas of, of conversation. We, we speak about ACEs and trauma-informed practice. We speak about empowerment. We speak about teacher professionalism and workload. We speak about the way that things are at the moment in Scottish education and what we need to do to improve. We speak about what we could learn from our kind of our neighbours from Mm -hmm. Wales from Ireland from England and David has a way of explaining things and articulating his vision for things in a really humorous and simple way and it's just a pleasure to listen to him so I'm looking forward to listening back to this interview and I, I hope that you enjoy it as well so here it is So we've got loads of things that we would be really uh, looking forward to chatting to you about tonight. Um, One of the first things um, is 
one around the eighth of where stuff that you're taking forward and Jude's going to just maybe... We, I, I went to the Portobello Learning Festival last year uh, and I, w- I was just blown away by that. I thought it was just a great sort of coming together of like-minded people, Scottish teachers talking about trauma-informed practice and I thought it was brilliant and it was it was great, the role that you played in, in bringing that all together. And I just wondered if we could start things off by, by talking about that, about Ace Aware Nation, talking about the role that you've played in that, but also where you think we currently are. We're, we're sort of moving along that road now. What still needs to be done? How do you think we're doing as, as, a, as a nation, as a group of teachers specifically, and, and then just in a kind of wider societal view of that? What's, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we're <clears throat> at a really interesting place. I think if anyone is looking on Twitter particularly, they'll see that there's a, a lot of controversy around the whole concept of ACEs and, mm. and the way that people feel it's been taken forward. And I guess my argument has always been that what we need is child-centeredness. I think it's as simple as that. Um, That what we need to do is recognise the experience that children bring to the classroom, to the contact with social work, to the contact with health services, whatever it happens to be. That we need to recognise the background that they have um, and see that not as a limitation but certainly is something that makes it more difficult for many children to succeed, particularly looked after children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think what we need is we need action at three levels. I think we need action at the political level, um, because clearly the, the, the climate of austerity, the financial constraints that we operate under, the introduction, universal credit, all of these elements make things much worse for young people. And I'm in no doubt at all that we require political action to address that. We've got unparalleled levels of inequality in this country. Um, I say unparalleled, uh, that's with complete disrespect to Dickens in his era, but uh, I think outside of that, it's very bleak at the moment. So we need political action. I think we need professional action, and I'm very impressed at the spread of that across Scotland. I think the interest in Paul Dix's work, engagement with Pivotal, some of the work that Mark Finnis has been doing. Mark's going to be at the Portobello Learning Festival this year. He does work around restorative practice. He's been widely engaged across Scotland. I think there's a lot of, if you like, professional involvement. And I've been hugely taken by the number of schools that I've worked with in Scotland, where there's a real heartfelt commitment to trying to make a difference for young people. Um, And that's been going on for a long time. And hopefully what the Ace Aware movement's done, if one can use that term, is energise that activity, reassure people that there are others engaged and involved, create a basis for exchange of practice and ideas and help people to move forward collectively. And then I guess the third thing is that we need action at a personal level. and um, It wouldn't do us any harm if people were just a bit nicer to one another, he said mm-hmm. at the risk of uh, lapsing <laughs> into cliché. But, you know, I, I, I do think that how we conduct ourselves is hugely important. Um, I use, a, I use <clears throat> a set of leadership lessons a lot. Mrs May from the last election, the <laughs> yeah, triumph that she managed to engineer with that, uh, drawing some negative lessons from that, uh, looking at Brexit, that um, absolutely outstanding example of 
British political leadership. Yeah. Um, I'm sure people voted to leave and voted to remain. I haven't met anyone who actually voted for the shambles that we're currently <laughs> in. Um, and then contrast that, if I'm working south of the border with Gareth Southgate and the England team, and I use the image of him moving to the Colombian player who missed the penalty in the penalty shootout and allowed England to win their first penalty shootout since 1066 yeah. when the Battle of Hastings was settled after extra time by a penalty shootout. <laughs> won since then. But he's not there congratulating um, Dyer who scored the final penalty nor Marcus Rashford who's in the shot. He's with the Colombian and that's all about behaviour. It's all about what really matters to people in terms of leadership. And I think we see consistently that kind of behaviour from Scottish teachers. Mm -hmm. and, and David, I think your summing up there of those three levels is, is really quite nice. I've never really thought about it in that way but I guess if you take something like um, the Scottish government's focus on the pupil equity fund. I, I kinda, so there's clearly a political will and a buy there. Then, yeah. then at a professional level, there's the buy-in. But the bit that probably we're not getting is the personal buy-in because are the, the individuals responsible for that or is it still lying in the wrong hands in terms of money? And I guess my other thought there is can education be the, the kind of saviour of all of society's problems? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think taking your last point first, um, my answer to that is no. I think education can make a difference. Mm -hmm. I think it can make a massive difference. But to, to use the cliche again, it can't make all the difference. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're increasingly seeing is an overemphasis on the importance of attainment and the role of schools. Mm -hmm. um, and around that, and we're seeing a real constriction in terms of community learning and development, in terms of youth services. I think we're seeing pressures in health services. Uh, social work is absolutely decimated in certain areas. And that really puts a huge pressure on schools in the sense that schools can close that attainment gap without that support from other services and without that strength in other services, I think is simply delusory. Mm -hmm. And what it does, I think, is that it, in a sense, it increases the stress on schools. Um, I, one of the things I talk about a lot is the fact that the demands <coughs> on schools and teachers I don't think have ever been greater. Um, we, we, you know, our classrooms are much more complex in many areas in Scotland. We've got massive rise in the requirement for education in English as a, a, a second language or alternative language. We, we've got <coughs> communities where there are much, much greater and more complex problems in terms of abuse, poverty, all of that. And yet against that background where there's increasing demand and I, I think a real fragmentation in terms of services and support in many instances, we're asking more and more from schools. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and that's not good that's not good for teachers. Um, I think a lot of teachers and education professionals measure themselves against the height of their ambition. Yeah. Um, yeah. and if the if, if, if they're not meeting the ambition that they have, then they find that really difficult to deal with. And, and yet, we make that more difficult for them 
through not fully addressing the complexity and also not fully addressing the workload issues that are around for them as well. So I think there's a real unfairness around that point. Um, and that, in turn, I think, makes it more difficult for individuals to act on a personal level. I think people feel harassed. I think, I think people feel under pressure. Um, I think there's a concern about covering the curriculum. Uh, the demands of SQA and others, you know, really press on teachers in terms of that kind of coverage. I think primary teachers probably under more pressure than ever mm -hmm. because of the emphasis on attainment and testing and all of that. Um, and that makes it more difficult for people to take the time um, to invest in young people, to show mm -hmm. they care because they're too busy. Uh, in many instances. And I think it's remarkable how much people do in the circumstances in which they work. I think I think that's a really valuable point as well about all, all of this because it's, it's impossible to depoliticise it and to remove our actions from the politics of it. You know, so the, the, the personal level of things is actually, for me, I've found just anecdotally the easiest part because actually a lot of this is common sense. Do you know, wanting yes. to build relationships, understanding that children who have experienced trauma might need different approaches to learning. Uh, but then it's it's difficult to remove that from, as you say, the competing agendas that are external factors that are coming on to that. But I, I would totally echo what you're saying in terms of it is it, it's amazing what people are doing to build relationships with, with young children, all young children. It does sometimes feel, though, that that's at odds or it feels like we're just doing this to get away with it or we're doing this until we're told to stop sometimes. And it's a, that's an, issue, an interesting point. But I think, I think you're touching on something that's really important. Um, and I think there's still doubt in people's minds about, for example, what they can do with their PEF money. Mm -hmm. um, I remember mm -hmm. listening to Graham Logan mm -hmm. um, when he was in the inspectorate talking at the STEP conference and he was very clear that schools could do what they liked with their PEF money, it was up to them, they were empowered and then later on in the same speech he was saying well you can't do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and we've had that with Curriculum for Excellence throughout, I think, of, of people feeling that they were only given autonomy to make mistakes. And as soon as they made one, they would get pulled up for it. Um, and I think we need real clarity around what people can do with the PEF money. I think we need real clarity around where a, a rise in attainment will come from. Um, I, I, again, tediously, I know, uh, continually use the, the expression that care is a strategy for raising attainment. Yeah. But I, I really believe that. I, I think there's a real uh, tension around when you think about the impact that care and love in the classroom has, mm -hmm. the impact that the factors identified um, in the Education Endowment Fund, the Certain Trust Research, which are all about engagement, they're all about pedagogy, they're matched in, in John Hattie's work around impact sizes in terms of interventions. They're not, they're not curriculum. And sometimes people don't know whether the real learning gains will come from intense curricular coverage and revision and, if you like, the tools and the tricks around the pedagogy and all of that, or whether they'll come from that broader canvas, if you like, of relationship and pedagogical interventions.
I think we could do a lot more clarity around that. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think a lot more joined up thinking as well. I mean, we've, we've spoke about the People Equity Fund here, and I think everything that, that that we're saying in every every discussion centers around this is recognizing that actually on our own we can't really fix a lot of that and and it's impossible to remove trauma-informed practice aces from a discussion around the how how closely linked that is to poverty and how children living in poverty are, are grown up with with traumatic experiences and actually is this the best place for that money to be being spent with us or how how do we approach that in a more joined up way rather than just school leaders having that money to be to be spending how do we how do we engage wider kind of more yeah. external agencies and and that's exactly right i think and um, one of the things i'm involved in just now is a review of voluntary sector funding in fife and there are there are so many potential sources of funding designed to address inequality and disadvantage in society, but so little real coordination of them. Um, and, it, and we desperately need to look at that again. Um, you know, I've been involved both in GERFEC when I was a director, and I was subsequently involved in uh, joint work, integrated resource uh, work with health and social work around older people and exactly the same issues. As soon as a bit of extra money arrived, people started squabbling about how they were going to <laughs> spend that additional money yeah. and and were totally distracted from debating how they would use the totality of the funding that we mm -hmm. had. Yeah. Um, and we, we really need to get, to get back to that. We really need to get back to that idea of, right, a school has a significant amount of PEF money. Maybe it's not the best idea to spend a lot of it bringing some, you know, superstar uh, consultant speaker, um, unless it obviously was me. That, that, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, whether, whether that's the best use of money or whether they would be better part, partnering with an organisation uh, in their community where they could work together with difficult children. Mm -hmm. I've seen fabulous work with an organisation with kids mm -hmm. who do some really, I think, outstanding work <clears throat> and you know, you get quotes from teachers about the play therapists who work with, with kids saying things like, it's almost as if they could see into their souls, mm. um, that level of understanding that they have, that insight that they have. Some brilliant work in the Leaving Mouth area with Fife Gingerbread, mm -hmm. um, working with schools there, Children's Parliament, um, yeah. a different type of organisation, but again, doing really, really good work in it. And that level of integration, I think, hugely helps schools. But again, with apologies to coin another of my cliches, mm. I think a lot of the time in schools, people are too busy drowning to reach for the life belts. Yeah. So, so to pick up on that last point then, David, what is it that we need to do so that people aren't drowning? And, you know, is there a systemic issue that we've not got it right? Do we, you know, we hear a lot of things around changing structures, local authorities, losing control of education, moving to a regional improvement collaborative... We've had a kind of review of Education Scotland. Scottish government are in there in the learning director as well. Like, have we got something fundamentally wrong that our teachers aren't able to get on with the job of teaching? 
I suspect there's a number of things that would go fundamentally wrong. Um, <clears throat> I think at a micro level, there's some really straightforward things that we could do. Um, if you create literally hundreds of experiences and outcomes, then it's almost inevitable that people are going to start producing grids to ensure that they're covered. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and if you then bring in you know, again, hundreds of benchmarks without making clear what that means for the status of the experiences and outcomes, which mm -hmm. I don't think people have, then that adds to the confusion. Um, and I think what, what we need around that is a, a complete simplification of it. I think we need to identify what's the knowledge that, that young people need to have particularly the conceptual knowledge that they need for understanding and try as best we can and give clarity and specification around that. And then I think we need to identify what the skills are and there was work done on that through <coughs> Keir Bloomer mm -hmm. and Chris McElroy a number of years back where they did a really good piece of work around higher order skills and there was a resource produced to, um, to support that. But if we, if we went with these higher order skills and had clear statements about where we expected children to be at particular stages, they don't need to be graded by a general description, that would simplify things. That would decrease, I think, the burden of recording and indeed reporting. I think it would make things more straightforward. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a relatively straightforward thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, he said, with his tongue rammed so far into his cheek, <laughs> he looked as if he had an infection. <laughs> because, it, you know, apologies, but one of my experiences was I, I worked on the reduced versions, the Reader's Digest versions of the Building the Curriculum document, okay, wow. um, where we, we reduced them all, apart from Building the Curriculum 4, Mm -hmm. of which more are known, if you like. We reduced them all to less than 2,000 words. Mm -hmm. um, and at one point, I'd reduced one of them to 800. Um, what was the, the reason for doing that was that we were talking about curriculum for excellence as a reinforcement of current good practice. Mm -hmm. Well, if it's just a reinforcement of current good practice, why do you need all of that documentation? So the documentation should be commensurate, it should be accessible, it should be easily digestible. Yeah. But the difficulty that we had getting that reduction through, the difficulty that we had persuading people who'd been involved in the original drafting that their documents could be changed or reduced or made more accessible was just absolutely horrific. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as I say, we started off with one of the, building the curriculum documents down at 800 words, up to 1,000, up to 1,500, and people were just stuffing stuff back in. Yeah. And people need to see what the collective impact of that is. Um, you know, that I mean, it's that classic story, I'm really interested in my subject, therefore my subject needs this. Okay, so does my subject. And soon you've got an undeliverable curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to begin to, to face up to that, I think. And I forgot where I started, sorry. But no, you're fine, no, no, no. Um, so, so going back to that kind of point around how difficult things are to get through, 
one of the I was at a recent conference in Glasgow um, for into headship, and Gail Gorman spoke, and her phrase this has really stuck with me, and it was this was probably four months ago, and and her her kind of ambition or vision as the chief inspector was moving Scottish education from a politically driven system to a professionally led system. And when you start to actually dig a wee bit deeper with that, you think, okay, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> but you've got to then look at, right, where is their politics within our professional system? So you could argue that Education Scotland, our chief inspector, is a professionally led body. But there is politics involved in that as well, isn't there, naturally? Um, so how, how realistic is that ambition of, of putting the power and all the idea around empowerment back into the hands of our teachers and school leaders? I think, I think what we need is we, we need clarity about what it is we're trying to empower. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I get really tired of... People and this isn't a comment about about Gail Gorman, no. uh, particularly or anyone else. But I just get so tired of people bandying about words, mm-hmm. um, and it's that you know Shakespearean thing about words, words. I've had enough of words. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is it that we're empowering people to do? I think what we want to empower teachers to do, particularly, is to have more control over what they deliver in curricular terms and how they deliver it. Mm-hmm. I think we should be clear that as far as is possible, the curriculum should not be politically driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's difficult. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, I mean, clearly the, the curriculum in Scotland is shaped in particular ways because of a commitment at a political level to Gaelic. Um, and and so you know partly because of the, the the current government we've got a huge emphasis on Gaelic Gaelic medium education. I'm I'm not arguing against that. I'm simply stating that yeah, as yeah. something that might be less of a priority with a, a government of a different complexion. Um, I think similarly, there's a real sense of needing to establish Scottish identity through the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if Ruth Davidson and others were in, in charge, there might be more of an emphasis on, on Britain as mm-hmm. a context. So mm-hmm. there will always be that level, but I think we should be trying to minimise that political control of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. I think where we can't avoid the politics is around investment. Mm-hmm. The, the spending decisions need to be accountable democratically, and that needs to be either at local or national level. And we, we need to be able to say we are going to spend our money in education in particular ways and if we make the decision that it's there to promote <coughs> equality and excellence, mm-hmm. that has an impact on how we invest. And, and, you know, again, I don't think these are decisions for teachers to make. Yeah. So that whole discussion around empowerment, I think people need to say empowered in which areas and empowered to do what. Um, you know, I don't. I, I, I'm perfectly happy for people to be empowered to decide uh, which textbooks to buy, for example, sure. if want to buy textbooks or whether they want to buy, you know, iPads or or, mm-hmm. <coughs> or, or Chromebooks or whatever. Um, but I think 
the, the, the big decisions that are in Spain that are essentially political and depend on what our national ambitions are in terms of the impact that we want education to have. It would be useful if people would engage with that kind of um, complexity, if you like, a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I, and I, I also think we need to think through what people are saying. Uh, I picked John Swinney up at the last DEP conference where he was taking the same line around an empowered profession. And I was pointing out to him that it wasn't that long since Education Scotland had advertised for a director of scrutiny. Yeah, I remember it. <laughs> you know, which, which didn't sound incredibly yeah. like an empowering post. No. Uh, you know, the scrutiny is <laughs> <laughs> not the best but, choice of words, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's just me. Um, <laughs> But, you know, and it is a bit like the regional improvement collaboratives, mm-hmm. um, which always sound to me as if, like something that was engineered in the Soviet Union in mm-hmm. the 1920s, maybe to, to, to get rid of the kulaks and improve agriculture. It's just got that real top-down ring to it. Yeah. And, and that's not what it's about. I know that. Uh-huh. Uh, but we just need to think a bit more carefully about consistency around these things. Mm-hmm. And, and David, you, you have experience as a director of education and children's service, as a head of service, as a quality improvement uh, manager. Were there ever times where you, you were conflicted because your local authority, you maybe wanted to move in a different direction from national policy? Yeah, I mean, I mean there were always conflicts. Um, I mean, clearly, the, the, the most obvious example, I think, was around class sizes in the early years, yeah. um, where, you know, the, 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 there was a real standoff, I think, between the ambitions of government and the capacity of local authorities to deliver. Uh-huh. Um, I think there were also issues around some of the consequences that uh, reduced class sizes in P1 and P2 would have further up the school, you know, so in order to get these numbers at the start, in some of the schools in Stirling, we would have finished up with horrendous uh, composite classes further Mm -hmm. up and some real challenges in terms of organisation. So, you know, that's an example of of where there were difficulties. I I think um, around Curriculum for Excellence, at times we had some real challenges in terms of the way uh, things moved with the curriculum for excellence. I think we we moved away from the four capacities to a significant extent. Mm-hmm. I think we over bureaucratized. I had concerns about that. Yeah. But you know, I, I mean, I guess one of my problems is that I've got rather a well developed self destruct button. <laughs> so I like that. <laughs> so um, I, I I have tended. Uh, it's, it's not a case of a, a conflict at national level, but certainly within the local authority. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's how I lost my job, effectively, was because the, one of the political parties uh, wanted a review of discipline uh-huh. and authority. I thought that that was going to be counterproductive. Okay. Uh, I, I also felt that, you know, we, we were delivering... Uh, pretty well as a service. We'd been well reviewed by the inspector and so on, and I felt that there was a that that it was 
an inappropriate demand to make in terms of the use of staff time and so on. Um, and ultimately that led to me moving from the authority. And, and you know, I, I think that there do come times where if you're not prepared to do the king's business, you need to stop taking the king's shilling and try mm-hmm. and find something else to do. Mm-hmm. And do you think with the, the advent of the REC, the Regional Improvement Collaborative, that we will eventually move to that, back to the regional system that, did I say, you were probably part of at some point? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I to be honest with you, I, I don't really know. I mean, I think that the, the RECs, in some respects, remind me of a repertory theatre company, um, <laughs> that the roles change, but the players stay pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's, uh, it's very rare that you're wandering around going, God, I've never met you before. <laughs> I mean, certainly if we could manage the recycling of plastics in the same way we manage the recycling of professionals, I think we might be better <laughs> like that. Um, so so there's, a, there's a certain element of, you know, it, it, if we are using lots of the same people, how, how genuine is any change that we're making? Yes, yes. Um, and I also think that we actually need to clarify what the relationships between the local authorities and the RECs are. Yes. And yes. some of them are working really well. I, mean, I, I was involved in a conference um, in Dundee recently, which mm-hmm. was run by the REC, and it was fantastic, yeah. absolutely fantastic event. Um, I was just thrilled to be there um, and one of the comments that I made at the end of the conference, I was doing the summing up uh, inevitably I'm sentenced to that but uh, <laughs> and I was saying that that you know that, that this was a wreck which had moved beyond the eye and they were genuinely looking at we, it was a real mm-hmm. collaborative experience the event felt like a, more like a teach meet mm-hmm. yeah than, than a top-down conference. Um, it was excellent in that regard. But it was also the idea that they moved away from the eye in terms of improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that whole thing about, you know, it's, cha- it's about challenge, it's about improvement, it's about excellence. You know, it's that well-rehearsed rhetoric that we trot out all the time. And there are and, enough buzzwords in education, certainly, aren't there? Yeah. But, you know, the, the whole idea of challenge being the default position in almost every educational issue is just so disheartening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I, I constantly see people going well beyond anything that could reasonably be asked of them as professionals, um, whether that's pedigree, whether that's the efforts to get research head up and running in Scotland, whatever one might think of these groups or organisations, whether it's around teach meets, whether mm-hmm. it's around people turning out on Saturdays for things like the STEP conference mm-hmm. or Portobello Learning Festival or whatever. I mean, these are not people that need to be challenged, but they're folk that need to be helped and supported, I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the Scottish Attainment Encouragement might not have the same ring to it. But, you know, seriously, do people need challenge to raise attainment? Um, we need to think a bit about some of that vocabulary as well. It's it's hierarchical. Yeah, I think I, you're right. I think it's, it's interesting that you're picking up on that, David, because I think I'm constantly blown away by the, the, the 
Scottish teachers and exactly what you're saying, the amount of teach meets and the amount of people on, even just on Twitter on something as informal as that, you know, that that, that community that is growing is, is huge. And I, I suppose, do you know, I was at an event, um, a creative conversation that, that you were summing up at the end as well, which is a lovely role that you fulfilled. <laughs> it was a, it was a wonderful event with uh, Hill Roberts and Jeanette Mason Wooden, and it was just that the, the happiness injection, and it was just fantastic. And a big part of what they were talking about was just their their stories from education and seeing two professionals in, in a room full of professionals enjoying that and, and enjoying everything that they were talking about. But there is also the element about the, the the fact that there are things that are rubbish at the moment, you know, and there there are things that are needing changing, and we're we're just got a, a a new pay award for Scottish Scottish teachers, obviously, and that's going to address a big part of things that yeah. we need to improve. But what else? I mean, this is opening up the door for a wider conversation about what else it is that we need to improve for Scottish teachers. And if, I mean, if you're in that room with people, what what would you be saying? What else are we needing to change other than just pay what else can we do to to get rid of the lemon suckers as it were (laughs) (laughs) right um i think time for teaching um which i think i'm i'm going back towards 1990s early 2000s when when that came out um i think i i do a huge amount of work in england with business managers um and I think business managers are pretty much an endangered species <laughs> in Scotland. Um, but where they work well, both in Scotland and certainly in England, they make a massive difference to the amount of time that mm. school leadership teams have. Um, I think classroom assistants, I know there's been controversy around the research on classroom assistants, but I think support for teachers in that way, mm-hmm. I think, can kind of a huge impact. You know, I... A lot of the time, people talk about workload and teacher well-being, and they immediately move to mindfulness. And you know, I, I, and I'm not against mindfulness. No. And, and if people want to to be involved in that, I've seen some excellent practice around it. Um, do be mindful. I think are a really good example of that. But if you keep the disease and only treat the symptoms, Mm. you're going to be doing mindfulness for the rest of your life. Um, You cannot breathe away the tensions that are imposed on the system. You need to get to the root of what's causing them. And as I say, I think the pay helps. Mm -hmm. I think additional support for teachers. Um, I think anything that we could do around recruitment, um, Mm. because again, I think people are struggling, people lose... Mm -hmm preparation time because of absence and they're not being adequate supply to cover it. All of these things, I think, are massive issues and need to be seriously addressed. Now, whether the answer to these come through engagement with you know, HR companies or whatever, um, whether it, the, the pay award will make the profession more attractive, whether we need to take more steps. Uh, Tim Brickhouse and I did a lot of work at one stage Um, around staffing and we were looking at staff retention we were looking at issues around recruitment we put together a lot of ideas and uh, a kind of toolkit around how we can strengthen that but whether or not we have the right solutions or not I think we need to start looking again at that whole area Uh, we don't have enough teachers we don't have enough support for them um, and we don't have enough backup so I think 
back to the time for teaching thing. Um, I think there are some real interesting issues for us. Um, when we started Curriculum for Excellence as, as a nation, I think one of the things that we were keen to do was to try and get complete alignment. Mm -hmm. So we were having curricular change. Um, that meant that we needed changes in training. So we got the Donaldson report mm -hmm. on teacher education and continuing professional development. Um, and then we had the McCormick, uh, McCormick group, was it? Looking yep. at teachers' pay and conditions, the kind of follow-up to McCrone. Um, so the idea was that we needed to think about the role of the teacher and we needed to think about the teacher's terms and conditions. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not arguing that McCormick got it right, um, but I think we backed away from that mm. uh, almost as if it was a single issue. And I don't think we really thought through the connectedness of curricular change, teacher development, teacher terms and conditions, time for teaching and support for those working in the classroom, um, a, a development of IT and additional support. I don't think we stuck long enough with that as an integrated strategy. And I think they're more successfully attempting to do that in Wales now, um, where I feel that they've learned um, from the Scottish experience. I'm, I'm, you know, I know Graeme Donaldson would get really angry at any suggestion that it was, you know, that Wales were doing a born again curriculum for excellence. Mm -hmm. But I think undoubtedly they have picked up from the Scottish experience, and that's one of the areas where they've done it. So we maybe need to go back and look in a much more holistic way about all of that, mm -hmm. while at the same time, as I was saying earlier, do some of the straightforward things. Um, that we can do around reducing the pressure in curriculum coverage, mm -hmm. making sure that we look at assessment um, so that, you know, ass assessment doesn't become burdensome. Um, you know, but Paul Cochran, who's very active on Twitter, uh, really very, very, very funny guy at times. Mm -hmm. um, and he's forever talking about the amount of time that he spends in SQA work. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there are real issues around that. I remember um, when I was teaching at Strathclyde at the university, I was doing one of the postgraduate options there. And I remember one of the teachers arguing with me um, that it wasn't enough to make somebody good at English in order to guarantee them doing well in a national five because of the specificity of some of the questions. And that's the kind of thing that we need to pick up on and address. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that if we have to teach to a test, then, and, and that prevents us spending appropriate time on concepts and ideas and, and much more important and fundamental knowledge, then that's problematic and it needs to be picked up on. And in so doing, I would hope that we could reduce workload as well. Mm -hmm. And do you think, David, we stick at things enough. So I'm thinking just when you were talking about the, the Donaldson review there, one of the things in it was about creating this leadership pathways and, and that's where scale came out of. Yeah. Um, and we've kind of had that for three years and then now we've kind of got rid of that and my worry is that the focus 
kind of disappears on leadership development because of course we used to have that as part of learning and teaching Scotland they used to have that focus on CPD yeah and do you think like are is our stickability good enough in Scottish education or are we constantly trying to review things and let's look at this again and because you know you're right we've got things right and we're really good at some things but other things it seems like we're just we're going back to to conversations we've had previously. Like, do you know what I mean? I, oh, I know, absolutely, absolutely. It's like being a, an adult who's a stranger to their own childhood. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, we did that. I mean, it's like it's, I mean, you're working with young people in schools. Mm-hmm. You're going, yeah, no, 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 we, we went over this point. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I have no recollection of my previous experience. Um, and we do that. I mean, I. One of my other current burbles is that I think people get fed up with painting and wet walls. <laughs> um, and it's that idea that, you know, um, and we, we, the creative learning plan, I think, is a brilliant example of it. We had a year of creativity and clearly that was enough. Um, you know, <laughs> Don't need to do that again for another 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that is exactly the kind of thing. We've got a creative learning plan, which on the basis of my links with schools and teachers, hardly anybody's read. Um, mm-hmm. Most people have read Finnegan's Wake, interestingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we, so we have this, it's about creativity, you know, it's about employability, you know, it's about, you know, developing Scotland's young workforce and this idea of the perfect storm. And, and people need to be much clearer about what are the elements, and apologies again because I say this all the time, what are the elements that give coherence to the developments that we undertake? Mm-hmm. What, what, is, what are the connecting threads in terms of what we believe will make a difference for young people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's such, a, that's such an important question though, isn't it? But, and I think it's, it's difficult when there is so much noise and so mm-hmm. much competing agendas and, and it's difficult to argue with any one of these single threads but I think yeah. a, a theme of what you've been saying this evening and I couldn't agree more was how do we simplify things how, yeah. do, how do we bring things together so there is and again with the, the risk of a, another kind of piece of rhetoric thrown out there but this shared understanding how do we create a shared understanding at all levels in, in, in all stakeholders having a shared understanding of what we're moving towards and what we want to achieve. And I don't think there is a single shared understanding yet. And that, I suppose that's difficult. It's about how do we create that and then work towards it. It's, and it's I, tricky. I think, and that's what the, the National Improvement Framework document has, in my opinion, set out to do. Now, I don't know if that's just more noise and that's another document to look at. Or is it a helpful tool to to provide that clarity of yeah. our direction? I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, again, I think um, the, the the need for coherent thought leadership, if you like, mm-hmm. um, and and a willingness to engage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that, that was interesting in, in the development of Curriculum for Excellence was that, you know, as people are forever saying it, grew out of the national debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, suddenly it was withdrawn um, within the cloisters of the teaching profession. And we kind of 
mulled over it and got engaged in lots of debates and people were saying, well, you're not telling us enough. We don't know enough. And okay, well, we'll give you these experiences and outcomes. And oh my God, look at all this stuff. <laughs> We've got these green folders. No, that's not really what we meant. And at some point, we need to sit down and say, right, what is it we mean? Um, I, I, I think there's a huge opportunity uh, for us if we can engage much more with the positive voices in Scottish education. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody like Fergal Kelly, I think, is yeah. a brilliant example. That you know, Fergal came out of that, if you like, that grassroots pedagogy mm-hmm. movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then when he went into scale, I think he brought a huge amount of that with him. And mm-hmm. clearly, the the people who had leadership positions and scale were open to that and mm-hmm. were encouraging it. But Fergal had the ability and the credibility to genuinely take that forward and was doing stuff around leadership, for all, at, leadership at all levels, mm-hmm. as were other people in scale, that was going down well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I expected there to be more of a challenge to that, more cynicism around that. But I think some of that was particularly well handled. And I think if we can engage more with with that set of positive voices, um, you know, consultation in Scottish education has tended to be much more with the teachers' unions. And I'm a, you know, I'm a committee trade unionist and always have been, but the the, the trade unions often, often telling us what we couldn't do and what we weren't prepared to do and not really getting engaged in that kind of positive and constructive discussion. Now, that's, that's a gross generalisation. Mm-hmm. There have been lots of instances where there have been really, really helpful interventions from EIS and, and SSTA yeah. and other teachers' organisations. It's by no means a blanket condemnation, mm. but often we've, you know, we, we've things have perished in Scottish education on the rocks of workload consistently, mm-hmm. um, and we what we haven't done is to stop and say, right, well. Let's talk less about what we're not going to do. Mm-hmm. Let's maintain that. But let's talk more about what we are going to do mm-hmm. and therefore what we need to stop doing, if that makes any kind yeah. of sense at all. It yeah. makes perfect sense. And I wonder, again, and I'm, as I'm forming this question, I don't know if there's an inherent flaw within it, but I'm thinking that, that there's already so much happening within Scotland. But that point that you're making there about what are we going to do, is, is, is there any scope for us... Looking out with Scotland, what 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 have you seen on in your travels that that would sort of fit within the Scottish education system where we're at at the moment? Is is there room for that, or are, is it too uh, ingrained in society and everything else that's happening in a unique position in Scotland for us to be introducing other things from out with, or are there things that you've seen that you think would work well? Within yeah, the I mean, we 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 did a conference. Um, <laughs> he said grandiosely. Um, <laughs> Tim Brighouse and I, uh, Tim was the Commissioner for London Schools and Chief Education Officer for Birmingham, and he and I got some money from the Hamlin Foundation, and we brought in people from all four parts of the United Kingdom for a weekend. 
Um, and I'm more than happy, if anybody's interested, to share the report that we did. Mm-hmm. And we, we only had 20 people. We had five from each nation. We did try and get a reasonable spread. So we had class teachers, head teachers, people uh, out with the classroom. But, you know, we, we tried to keep it very much focused on schools. Um, we got Graham Donaldson involved because of his links with Wales. And we had a guy, Tony Gallagher, from, from Northern Ireland. And over the course of that weekend, what we did was we talked about what it was that we felt made each part of the United Kingdom unique uh, in terms of our commitments, ambitions, and, and what we actually did. We then talked about what, what were the differences, um, and we then talked about what we could learn from one another. And I think there were a lot of interesting possibilities that came from that. Um, I, I think. There are lots of things in England that appall me. The politicisation, the marketisation of education mm-hmm. in England at times is utterly, utterly frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that you get education ministers on Twitter engaging in discussions about curriculum and pedagogy yeah. um, and the unjustified aggressive certainty with which they do it just scares me. Um, it's almost like they were in a party that's obsessed with Brexit. But there we go. Um, you know, we've got all of that. So there's not much to be learned from that. But there is, I think, in, in England... Um, there's a real willingness to wrestle with curriculum content. And Mm -hmm. I think we need to do that. I think we need to do that here. I think we need clarity. Otherwise, how do we prevent the syllabi for certificate courses becoming effectively unteachable? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there are lessons to be learned around that. It's early days in Wales, and I think Wales has a history of often doing the right things without managing to generate the right results. But um, they, they are making a real concerted and coordinated effort. Um, and I, I think there's much to be learned from, from the Welsh experience. Um, and I, I, I think we should be having more discussions around that. So I think there are there are lots of possibilities without necessarily having to jump it to Finland. Um, mm-hmm. I but I do think that, that you know, it, it, there is something around learning from those areas which are more socioeconomically mm-hmm. compatible with us. Um, I mean, Finland's got differential factor of four in terms of equality between richest and poorest, and we're up about 28, 29. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so, of course, it's much easier to have a fully comprehensive system in Finland than it is here. But I I, I do think around that. The last thing I'm going to say about this, though, is that that one of the other themes of this discussion has been about internal learning in the Scottish context. Mm -hmm. And I get really hacked off. Um, technical expression um, mm-hmm. by the fact that we'll, we'll do Scotland, dreadful, you know, PISA performance or whatever. Um, and we treat the average as if it was a consistent representation of performance in Scottish schools. Mm-hmm. And the reality would be that in PISA there would be Scottish schools which obviously mathematically perform well above the average. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and others which perform below. 
but we talked in general about PISA. We never said, here are a number of schools which have done particularly well in PISA. What mm -hmm. are the lessons we can learn from that? We never do that kind of analysis. Mm -hmm. um, and there needs to be much more willingness, I think, to do that. Um, I, and, you know, th that, that willingness to engage with good practice, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think, would, would stand us in good stead that there are people, there are individuals in schools, there are schools as a whole who are making a significant difference to the lives of all of their young people. And there needs to be a greater demand for consistency around that. Definitely. And I think some of the things you're sharing there around PISA can be said as well about our inspection um, process as well. I think, you know, how many times do people just jump to, what did you get? What were the numbers? What were the scores on the door? And actually, when you start reading a report, you actually get a wee bit more of a sense of what a school is about. And actually, for some schools, getting good and satisfactory is a major achievement given what they're, they're having to deal with on a daily basis. Absolutely. And, and, I mean, again, I think the Scottish inspectorate do very well, and I think they compare very favourably with inspectorates elsewhere. And I think some people who are particularly critical of Scottish inspectorate would do well to have a brush with Ofsted in England at some point. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I can distinctly remember when I was working in Stirling uh, two HMI reports which came out fairly close to one another and the text um, in the description of leadership in the two schools was almost identical mm -hmm. um, the grades were different mm -hmm. and the reason for that was that the levels of attainment in the schools were different mm -hmm. Whether they were justifiably different or not, you know, that, that's an open question. Mm. But how you could have two school leaders described in almost exactly the same terms and one being rated very good and the other barely scraping a good strikes me as, as a, a very confusing message indeed. Um, and we do need to get our heads around this idea that, you know, nobody is trying to argue that poverty and disadvantage uh, should be allowed to blight children's lives mm -hmm. for as long as they live them. But to pretend that it doesn't have an impact on the pace at which we can move in schools, to pretend that it doesn't take longer to, to get young people coming from challenging and difficult backgrounds to, if you like, catch up. I mean, I hate these terms, but I think mm, yeah. no, it, yeah. it, it, it's, a, it's a convenient shorthand. I, mean, I, I worked in a school in Edinburgh uh, last year, uh, did some teaching there. Harold Roberts and I did, did some teaching in the school together. And I was saying to the head teacher that the primary two class that I was working with were really, really, really difficult. Mm. And uh, I found the primary five class that I was working with was was easier. Mm -hmm. um, and the head teacher said, that's not the case. And we mm. looked at the composition of the two classes. And 
you know, in terms of children on, on, on the register, children with additional support plans, mm-hmm. all of these kind of factors. The primary five class looked to be a more challenging class than the primary two class. Yeah. And I said that to the teacher, and, and quite rightly, she said to me, David, we've had them for three years longer. <laughs> and, you know, she was, you know, she was rightly arguing mm-hmm. that the difference that I was perceiving was a measure of the contribution that the school was making to these children. Mm-hmm. And if, if, they'd been, if they'd been measured in terms of their early years attainment, in conventional terms, the chances are that they would have been in a difficult position. But if they were measured on the impact that they had on these children over the years that they spent in that primary school, then in terms of attainment, I think they would be in a very strong position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we need to engage with that. You know, yeah. We need to find a way of engaging with that level of value added. It's not an excuse for failure. It's not about saying, well, you can't expect anything else from these kids. You know, haven't forfend that 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 should ever be the case. But there needs to be a recognition that we require different paths. Howell Roberts, who's a really valued colleague of mine, you know, talks about kids for whom we need to part the nettles. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Kilkenny, another person that I, I work with a lot, he, he talks about the need that he had as a young person just for engagement. He just needed somebody to open the door for him, take his hand and help him through it. I'd not give up on him when yeah. he struggled. Um, and Chris is a brilliant example of somebody who had chances and made progress and then fell back um, and needed a particular level of sustained support before, if you like, his success became stable yeah. and, and hopefully long-term. And, and we need to start building these factors into some of the judgments that we're making about schools. Definitely. Now, David, I'm going to give you some thinking time just now because I'm going to ask you to do your bit that you're asked to do, and that's to sum up for us. But before I, I do that, I just want to thank you so much for um, agreeing to speak to us. We, I think, without it being too um, <laughs> cheesy, but um, Jude and I have really, really enjoyed kind of hearing your work like um, at conferences and certainly the most recent STEP conference, I listened to the, the podcast back to that. And I think just your contribution to Scottish education um, is just exemplary. And I just thank you for that and, and continuing that debate and continuing to challenge us um, to really think about where we're at and what we need to do next. Uh, cheers. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm really touched. Um, I'm actually kind of you to say that. I really appreciate it. Um, I mean, summing up, I, I guess what we're talking about is that we, we need both breadth of vision and Scottish education and focus. We need that breadth of vision that enables us to see what we need to do around schools as well as within schools to effect change. There needs to be a recognition that we, we, we had the right aspirations with GERFEC mm-hmm. and possibly we allowed that to become bureaucratised and certainly to move away from some of the real core changes that we hope that it might bring. So we, we need that breadth of vision that sees education in, in a wider political and social context. I think what we're seeing beyond that is that we need the, the focus that recognises that teachers will work best when they're valued, mm-hmm. when they're supported 
and when there's a real effort made to address some of the genuine issues that create workload and stress. So we need to look at some of the demands that we're making around that, as well as the support. Um, I think I've suggested in the course of the conversation a number of areas that it might be profitable to look at. Um, I've got a load of other tools that I use when I'm working with schools to try and help people to, you know, to get to the core mm -hmm. of, of what matters in terms of their activity and allow them to focus on things that make a difference rather than being overwhelmed with those that don't. And I think if we do the simple things while retaining the broad ambition, mm -hmm. um, and I think the other thing that's coming through loud and clear, and this is a brilliant context for it, because the two of you are making the effort to put in additional time to try and take these debates and discussions much more widely and I hope that you get the audience that you deserve for these podcasts. But you're a really good example of people who need encouragement and support rather than challenge. And that idea of identifying the positives and building on them much more coherently and making the rhetoric of a professionally-led development a reality uh, rather than, at best, an alien cry. I think all of these things would help. And now it's time for We Recommend, where we recommend something that's been interesting to us since our last episode, and we want you to go and have a look at it as well. So what are we going to recommend this episode? Um, well, during the middle of May, we had Digital Learning Week, um, and I think there's so many great examples of where technology has been used to enhance learning. And I think none more so than if you go onto Twitter and have a look at the hashtag DigiLearnScott or NDLW19, then you will see a plethora of examples of digital learning mm. in action. And what I love about it, when you're just scrolling down, it, you, you see so many examples mm -hmm. of schools who are using digital technology in creative and exciting ways mm -hmm. and they're sharing it and sometimes it's just a snapshot sometimes it's uh, a sort of link to a tutorial or an idea that you could be doing in your class or an idea to use an interesting tool across your school and i think following that twitter handle did you learn scott and looking at national digital learning week uh, 19 that hashtag it just gives you so many ideas. And mm -hmm. it just it's a really great great way to, to, to start if you're if you're thinking about using more digital technology across your learning. Superb. Yeah. Okay, well thanks very much for listening to this superb episode on Edu Blether with David Cameron. Remember you can follow us at Edu Blether on Twitter and check out our website which has lots more content and we're always adding um, edgy blether with conversations there all of the time remember you can also join us on tuesday evenings from 8 till 9 p.m for edgy blether live you can follow us there using the hashtag edgy blether or just go to at edgy blether on twitter and you'll see us banging on about <laughs> edgy blether live um, so have a look at our twitter page to see what the, the upcoming edgy blethers are going